Well, that is one of our models, uh, mottos as believers, that all we have is Christ, and that's okay because He's all we need. It's wonderful to sing those thoughts. Join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today. While you find that passage, I'll give you just a quick bit of history. In the 1940s, German rocket scientists were brought to the United States, and that essentially was the beginning of our own nation's which is a very complicated field of study, of course. What's interesting is an expression that came out of that, though, later in the 1980s, something common in our English language, an expression we still use today as a way of saying that we don't think something is that difficult to understand. We'll say something like this, well, it's not rocket science. You ever said that? I say that. Lots of examples of that. Basketball is not rocket science. It's about putting the ball in the basket. That's it. I remember years ago, still have this vivid memory of one of the time, many times, but one of the times of playing golf with Pastor MacArthur in California. A couple of other pastors and I were with him, and he's a good golfer, and he hit the ball way out there, you know, and and he made this statement. He said, you know, golf is simple. You hit the ball in the fairway, you put it on the green, you knock it in the hole. It's not rocket science. Of course, we all looked at one another and felt pretty bad because we were having difficulty with every one of those elements, you know, <laughs> as he went on up to the green to wait on us. I've personally used this idiom many times in teaching or in conversation. In fact, I am using it today related to our sermon. Here it is. Recognizing the reality that there is a lack of true leadership in the world today is not rocket science. It's something obvious. It's painfully obvious that we are experiencing a dearth of leadership in society in spite of the fact that the topic has never been more studied than it is today. The topic has never been more written about. We see fewer prominent leaders who seem genuine, fewer leaders who are highly capable, so many leaders who have been compromised in some way or deposed or defeated. The deficiency of good leadership exists in the world of commerce and business. In many corporations, we find few noble leaders with both skill and integrity. But another area of society in which we find this shortage of leadership is certainly in the realm of government. That's been true for a while now. What an awful situation we are facing as we look toward the next presidential election. I pray this frequently, as I'm sure you do as well. Lord, please raise up someone that Christians can vote for with a clear conscience. But the most tragic example of the dearth of leadership is in the church. It's more tragic because of what the church is. It's described this way in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It says that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. 
It's the church that is God's agency to fulfill His gospel mission on earth, what we find in what we call the Great Commission. The church is involved in spiritual matters. The church is involved in matters that are eternal. And that reality makes the leadership crisis that is existing in the world insignificant in a way compared to the leadership crisis in the church. Sadly, we find an increasing number of pastors abandoning the truth of Scripture, numerous pastors neglecting their shepherding responsibilities, frequent examples of pastors defaulting due to a lack of character, many pastors supporting ungodly worldly agendas. Even this past week, one of our seminary students was telling me about this, a church here locally, that during the last gay pride parade that was here in Winston, there was a church that had placed a huge banner across the front of their auditorium proclaiming its support for the LGBTQ movement. It was a Baptist church. But despite the slide of the world and even many church leaders into increasing worldliness, we find in Scripture that God expects the leaders of His people to be men of character, men who faithfully teach God's Word, men who take holiness and obedience to Scripture seriously. It's to church leaders that God gives the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel to unbelieving sinners, but also seeing them baptized then after salvation into the fellowship of the church. It's church leaders who are responsible for helping God's people mature spiritually. We find these words in Ephesians chapter 4, that section about the gifted men that Christ gives to the church. Here's the purpose for giving gifted men to the church. Ephesians 4, starting verse 12, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man until we reach the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So this is a high calling given to church leaders. An elder must be faithful to this high calling. The Apostle Paul exhorted elders about that. He warned elders about that. The last time he ever saw the elders from the church in Ephesus, he said this, Acts 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Be on guard. He told Timothy this, these familiar words in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready, ready in season, out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort, and to do that with great patience and instruction. Not just Paul who wrote about this. Peter did as well. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Peter writes to the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Those verses and others represent God's standards for us as leaders, and we as leaders are accountable to God for all of this. Hebrews 13 verse 17 even says that we keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. 
What an overwhelming responsibility. So much so that the Apostle Paul, who was highly gifted, exclaimed this in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is adequate for these things? And the answer is, no man is able to effectively discharge the immense obligation of spiritual leadership in his own strength. Only God can provide the power and strength necessary and wisdom necessary to be an effective leader. Now, in our passage today, we find Paul, in his letter to the believers at Thessalonica, we find Paul making comments about this very subject, spiritual leadership. And the reason he did so was because false teachers were attacking Paul. They had lied about Paul and his colleagues, Silas and Timothy. They had lied about Paul attacking his character, his motives, his teaching all in an effort to dissuade the people in Thessalonica from listening to those missionaries and believing the message being preached. Those opposers were mostly made up of Jews. There were a few Gentiles as well who opposed Paul and falsely accused him. But in addition to that, in the first century, Paul's day, that world was full of false spiritual leaders, religious charlatans really, who traveled around and ministered merely to gain personal power, money, prestige. So those who opposed Paul, they found it easy to lump Paul in with that group of charlatans and huck hucksters and cult leaders. And doing this, like I said, they sought to convince the Thessalonians that Paul and his companions were frauds, just self-seeking frauds like so many other of the religious teachers of that day. Therefore, as distasteful as it was for Paul to have to defend himself and his missionary team, he felt it necessary to do so for the sake of the gospel mission. Now, thus far in our study of 1 Thessalonians, we found in chapter 1 the apostle explaining why he and his colleagues were so thankful for those believers in Thessalonica. They saw evidence in those converts that those people were truly the elect of God. They saw evidence of spiritual growth. They were spiritually healthy individuals, and it was a spiritually healthy church there. But now in chapter 2, and we'll see a little bit in chapter 3 as well, we find this lengthy vindication of the missionary's ministry. And in this vindication, we find one of the richest descriptions of the work of a Christian minister to be found in the New Testament. Now, our passage today and next week is verses 1 through 8, today and next time. In this section, we find a look at the ministry in Thessalonica that was carried out by Paul and his fellow missionaries, Silas and Timothy, and this look at their ministry is in the form of some contrasts that follow this pattern. He writes, this is what our ministry was not, but this is what it is. There's the pattern. So let's find out what kind of ministers these men were, and by doing so, we will see what should still describe church leaders today. In particular, we find three ways to recognize genuine gospel ministers. Here's the first one. They are known for having this. Number one, the right courage. 
the right courage in verses 1 and 2. Now, Paul begins with a general statement then about what did not describe their, their ministry. Verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you, coming to the city, was not in vain. As I noted with you in chapter 1, the people's response showed the confirmation of the effectiveness of Paul's gospel ministry in that city. So he appeals to that. He appeals to their knowledge of that reality, connecting what he says now to chapter 1 with that little conjunction 4. He writes here, it was obvious. It was self-evident that the gospel ministry that they carried out in that city was not in vain or not a failure, you could say. That term vain here in this context is best understood as meaning having no content, void of content, empty. It was the word used to denote something that had no effect, something inconsequential. So Paul's point is that this was not the case with their ministry in Thessalonica. The character of their ministry was and continued to be real. It was and continued to be effective. In fact, Paul and his fellow missionaries displayed what church leaders should definitely still express today, the confidence in God's power and God's message that results in courage. Courage no matter the circumstances. He tells you what the circumstances were in verse 2. He says, but, here's the contrast, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, stop there for a moment, we did discuss that in a previous sermon, what happened in Philippi. That's the city they ministered in before they got to Thessalonica, but let's review it again. We find it in Acts chapter 16 that they had rescued a slave girl who was demon-possessed by casting that demon out of her in the name of Christ. And therefore, her owners who made profit off of her, their owners were definitely not happy. Listen to Acts 16 verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Now there, the Acts tells us that they falsely accused Paul of uh, disturbing the city. And because of that, Acts 16 goes on to say that the crowd then turned on them and attacked them. Here's verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And verse 24 says, the jailer threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They suffered. That term suffering that's mentioned in our verse is referring to what I just read, the physical abuse that they endured. But our verse uses another word. It says that they were mistreated. That's a different term. In the first century, that's a term that would be used to describe treating people in a shameful way or insulting way in order to humiliate them publicly, which would end up causing mental distress in those people because of the indignities heaped upon them. That's what happened in Philippi. In Philippi, both sides of that. 
is what Paul and his colleagues experienced. Their preaching, the gospel, had brought them both intense physical suffering and this mistreatment, this public shame. When they arrived in Thessalonica, they would have still been bearing the scars of all that, visibly. And no doubt, that would have certainly made a strong impression on the Thessalonians because treatment like that would have been enough to stop any kind of phony minister, any kind of phony mission. But he uses that strong adversative, but, that begins verse 2, to introduce the contrast. In contrast to what happened to them, in contrast what you would normally expect If somebody goes through something like this, Paul and his comrades did not slink into the background. Even after they experienced all this bad treatment in Philippi, they had the confidence necessary to preach the gospel in Thessalonica. They were courageous, which is what the rest of verse 2 confirms. We had the boldness, the courage in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. That verb, had boldness, derives from a couple of words that together point out this idea of having no fear and therefore being completely confident. You can't find one English word to capture both those ideas, but together it's this idea. He says, we, had, we took courage and had confidence. And in the New Testament, whenever that verb is used, which it is used a few times, it's always used in connection with preaching. This fortitude in the face of that ill treatment is something really to marvel at. It indicates courage, courage of the very highest order. I mean, after going through something, what they went through, most people would have refrained from ever repeating the message that brought on that kind of treatment. Not going to preach that anymore, (laughs) but not these men. They had sufficient courage to boldly speak out despite the dangers that they would face. They did encounter much opposition, he says in the verse. That verb, that word opposition is the term agony. It's where we get our word agonized. It's a word that means struggle, to have conflict, even to fight. They would use it in their day to refer to the Olympic Games. So it's the picture of an athlete's struggle conflict, the struggle, the fight to to win first place in the contest. You see, that's what ministry is at times. It's a struggle. Because confident, courageous, biblical preaching doesn't necessarily lead to mass popularity. It can lead to conflict, and that requires courage. The ministry inherently has that. By the way, I couldn't help thinking of a something, a little conversation I had two weekends ago when I was in the Indiana. I went to Indiana to speak at a conference. I was the only speaker, and I was very sick. Went to the doctor before the trip. They tested me for everything. Couldn't find anything specific like COVID or strep throat, but had a horrible sore throat that lingered forever, a year, seemed like bronchial congestion and coughing, and then it went to my eyes. By the time I got to Indiana, 
My eyes were swollen. I was more hideous than normal. Teaching and preaching. It was great. It really was. The people were so receptive and so kind and and so anxious to hear and learn from Scripture. And I coughed and sputtered and kept hot liquids on the pulpit, kept a lozenge in my mouth the whole time just to suck on it, made trips to the pharmacy to get stuff. On Sunday morning, I went to a pharmacy there, found a 24-hour pharmacy to get a prescription for some cough syrup just to get me through the Sunday services. And while I was there, I was pondering my past. You know, most of you know I was a pharmacist years ago in Texas and in California and used to own a pharmacy. And I don't go to pharmacies that much, but I was there just looking in the pharmacy, remembering my former life. And uh, there was just a single pharmacist there, a lady, and I struck up a conversation and said, I I used to be a pharmacist, but now I'm a pastor. Here's what she said. Oh, did you become a pastor so you would have less stress? I said, yes, yes, I, I did. That's what I did. I thought that was quite humorous. I was coughing too much to tell her the truth, you know. Listen, these men experienced that conflict and that opposition and that struggle, but in spite of all that, Paul was confident, therefore he was courageous. But there's a couple of important qualifications to the courage here. It's not a self-confidence. It wasn't just due to something inherent in him. He says, look at the text, boldness in our God. It was the strength God continually gave him that resulted in the confidence necessary to persevere in his ministry. And he exhorted others to have that kind of confidence. He exhorted the Believers in Ephesus this way, Ephesians 6, verse 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. There's one qualification. Here's another one. The message they preached also fed that confident courage. It wasn't a social message. They didn't have courage to go around preaching that. It wasn't an economic message. It wasn't a political message. They were confident and courageous in preaching, he says, the gospel of God. That's a way of saying that the gospel is the message that finds its origin in God. So no obstacle, no threat was sufficient to deter those men from speaking and proclaiming that message, God's gospel. Paul's confidence in the power God gave him, his confidence in the message God gave him to preach, prompted courage. It prompted tenacity, even in the face of enemies. We get a glimpse here of a true gospel minister, a true servant of God. They must never have any thoughts of compromising the truth in order to diminish that conflict and opposition. He preaches the true, unmitigated truth God has laid out in His Word, and He does not do it for the sake of gaining popularity. And therefore, when opposition does come, He trusts then in the power of God and stays obedient to the calling. This is what genuine, dedicated ministers of the gospel do. They rest 
courageously in the sovereign, supreme power of the truth of God, and that gives them confidence to keep going in any circumstance. Here's the second one. Not only the right courage, but number two, you can recognize them this way, they have number two, the right goal. The right goal, verses three and four. Now we see in verse three that Paul uses the word exhortation to describe their preaching ministry. That term exhortation is a word that includes this idea of an urgent appeal. It's an urgent call to a congregation, to people. It's an, an appeal that emphasizes God's demands. It emphasizes God's character. It emphasizes God's judgment. It's appeal that addresses the intellect. It's an appeal that addresses the will, and it always is seeking a decision, a response of obedience to the Lord. But remember what I mentioned earlier. In Paul's day, there were these traveling religious charlatans. So those who were persecuting the missionaries, they sought to just lump these missionaries in with that group of counterfeits. They charged these men, Paul and Silas and Timothy, with the same thing that all those quacks were known for. But they weren't charlatans at all. So Paul goes on in verse 3 to explain that. They weren't like those. For our exhortation does not, here's the not side first, does not come from error, he says. They did not exhort with content that was wrong. They were able to show from the Scriptures that their teaching, the gospel of God, it was the truth. And of course, every preacher today should be able to do the same thing, prove that the teaching is from the Scriptures and not just his own personal opinions and musings. Now, we know that from from the very time of his conversion, Paul took the truth very seriously. He was a guardian of God's truth. Listen to how he mentored Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. He says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what's falsely called knowledge. Avoid all that, but guard the truth of the word that's been given to you. 2 Timothy 1.13 wrote to Timothy again, retain the standard of sound words. 2 Timothy 2.15, familiar words to us, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. How do you do that? Accurately handling the word of truth. That's the commitment of genuine gospel ministers. And oh, how we need that commitment today. Preachers and teachers who do not operate apart from this ultimate and final standard of divine revelation Men who are known for sticking with the right message. These missionaries were committed to the truth in their preaching. But not only that, they were committed to the truth in how they lived. They avoided the immorality that would deny their message that those charlatans sometimes were known for. He says in verse 3, or not from impurity. That's a word that means sexual impurity. To say the very least, the world of Paul's day, the mainstream mainstream culture of Paul's day was known for being very sexually permissive. 
There were cults of that day, idolatrous cults, many of those who even employed sexual activity as part of their worship as a means of achieving, they would say, some sort of ecstatic union with God. And then you add to that those traveling religious teachers and charlatans, many of whom would intentionally and then be successful in luring many women into sexual activity under the pretext of of offering them this more complete and more intimate religious experience. Acts chapter 17 tells us that Paul's converts in Thessalonica included some of the leading women of the city. So the opposition thought this was a good idea to make this part of their accusation that they could slander Paul this way by saying he's just like those charlatans, guilty of this kind of impurity, guilty of immorality, these missionaries. But it wasn't true. These men kept themselves morally pure. They spoke the truth and they spoke it out of pure lives. Here's another way they were not like those charlatans. He says in verse 3, or by way of deceit. The term deceit was used to signify catching fish. You know, with a bait, you try to trick the fish. So over time, it was the word used for any kind of of deception. Paul uses it to, to deny this idea that there was ever any attempt on their part to trick their listeners, to manipulate their listeners. And this was his commitment everywhere he ministered, not just in Thessalonica. Here's what he wrote to the believers in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. He says, we have renounced the things hidden in the darkness. And he's talking about what those false teachers did. We've renounced that. Then he says, not walking in craftiness, this cunning deceit. So they were not like the false teachers Those false teachers in Paul's world were known for all kinds of attempts to use magic and sorcery, even theatrics, to make it appear that they had this supernatural power and therefore they could manipulate people and deceive people and gain converts either for sexual favors or for money. By the way, you could also even hire gifted speakers and debaters. They were for hire You could hire them so that they would argue something on your behalf with great eloquence, whether they personally agreed with the view or not. And so that was the idea of dishonesty on their part, insincerity. That's what goes along with someone trying to deceive or manipulate with their words. So Paul's point was the missionaries were not like this. They didn't manipulate. They had no hidden agenda. They didn't speak with skillful cunning so they could entrap people. They didn't make empty promises. They didn't manipulate the Scriptures even for their own purposes. In short, you could add up all three of those knots and see Paul's point is we are not motivated by self-centered goals. That's what those three represented, self-centered goals. The missionaries simply presented the facts to the listeners in their true light. They trusted then in God's sovereign work. So altogether, the point of these disclaimers and denials is that their motives of these men, 
The motives were righteous. The missionaries lived and ministered with the utmost integrity. Their message was the truth. Their lives were pure. Their ministry was authentic and honest. The question is, what drove them to live and minister with that kind of integrity? And the answer is, they ministered with this heightened sense of duty. They understood they had been called into ministry by the Lord, and therefore their ultimate obligation was to God, and their ultimate goal was to please God. Here's how he says in verse 4, but just, but, there's that contrast again, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, Stop there for a moment. The idea of being approved is, first of all, it's put in the perfect tense, so it means something that began and continued. It's this idea of being tested and then completing the testing and then passing it and and gaining this endorsement from God. For Paul, that approval process began on the road to Damascus when the risen Christ appeared to him, saved Paul opened his eyes to the truth. Then after that, God took Paul through the necessary process to develop in him the capability for the task he was going to be assigned. And the task he was assigned was to take the gospel to the world, the Gentiles. Here's how Paul comments on that at times. Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. It was given to him. That was his job, his duty, his obligation tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 11, I've been entrusted with this job. He considered me faithful, verse 12 says, and he put me into service. He approved me, entrusted me with this. Titus 1 3, he was entrusted with proclamation according to the commandment of God. You see, Paul understood his role. He understood he was a steward of the message that had been entrusted to him. And that knowledge of that entrusting constantly constrained him to faithfully preach it. And the end result of that constraint, the end result of that sense of duty and calling and obligation is that he says that he and his missionaries lived with one clear goal, a goal that was not self-centered, It wasn't the goal of being popular, he says in the rest of verse 4, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, pleasing God who examines our hearts. I love that little verb, we speak. It's in the present tense. It's a way of writing it to say this was our habitual practice. Everywhere they went, out of a sense of duty, the missionary team didn't hesitate to speak. What do you do for a living? We speak. But they never did it in a superficial way. He says they never did it for the purpose of pleasing men. No, our goal ultimately was to please God. And that's the right goal of everything. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.9 is a great summary of, of this for the Apostle Paul. This ought to be a verse everybody memorized. It ought to be on everyone's refrigerator. 2 Corinthians 5.9. We have as our ambition, our goal, whether dead or alive, to be pleasing to Him. And our verse reminds us of something about God. He says, we speak all the time, 
We don't have a goal of pleasing men. There's nothing self-centered here like the charlatans. Our goal is this, to please God who examines our hearts. That's a reminder of God's omniscience. He knows our hearts. And the term hearts refers to the inner self, the the real person. It's where thought and motive and conscience and feeling and will, they all join together, the inner man. Those are the faculties of the inner man, and God examines, God scrutinizes all those faculties. And He knows whether His servants have this goal or not, whether they're seeking to please Him or people. And since God knows what's in the heart of every person, which means He knows all their thoughts, all their desires, all their motives, this right goal excludes anything deceitful. It excludes concealing something, secrets, because nothing's unknown to the Lord. Nothing's concealed to Him. As a minister, you read this, and on one hand, it's sobering the fact that God examines the hearts. I mean, this brings an ongoing challenge to us as church leaders. But on the other hand, there's actually something about this that liberates ministry. It's actually comforting, on the other hand, to know that God knows and honors that goal. If that's our sincere goal to please Him, He honors that. Listen, we are very aware as church leaders, that we don't do anything perfectly, and we do a lot of things imperfectly. And people don't always like what is decided or even what is taught, and just thinking in terms across the world in the church, but God does approve faithfulness to His Word, regardless how a message may be criticized in the, the court of the, of the world's opinion. So we cannot allow ourselves to care only about what people think, whether or not they're going to be pleased. You see, the Bible addresses that issue, caring too much about what people think, which everybody struggles with at some level. Even caring more about that than what God thinks, the Bible calls that the fear of man. And that's a sin that's clearly condemned in Scripture. Proverbs 29, 25 is the standard verse on that. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, a trap. But the one who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul had to confront the Galatians very strongly. So he says in verse 10 that he was not seeking the favor of men in doing that. He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The two don't go together. Trying to serve the Lord and being a slave of the Lord and trying to please people. It's oil and water. Listen, anyone who has ministered in the church for any length of time at all has learned that he's just not able to ultimately completely meet all the legitimate obligations and legitimate needs of the congregation. And sometimes congregations can have illegitimate expectations. I found a humorous little statement about that. It's written by Philip Ryken. He lists what many congregations expect of their pastor. Here's what they expect. He needs to condemn sin but never upset anyone. He should work from 8 a.m. until midnight and also be the janitor. 
He can make $60 a week, but he needs to give about 50 of that to the poor. He ought to be energetic, like 28 years old, but be preaching with quality as if he's been preaching for 30 years. The perfect pastor smiles all the time because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. He spends all his time, though, evangelizing the unchurched out there, but he's always in his office when needed. I'm grateful our congregation is not like that. So there is a high biblical ideal that we're to meet. There's frequently unreasonable expectations from church members. So no wonder pastors can be criticized for their performance, but this fact of life, along with the knowledge of our weaknesses and the knowledge of our failures, cannot be allowed to control us. It's this goal that must control us, the goal of pleasing God, first of all. That is what can sustain long-term faithful ministry. Therefore, it's the goal that ministers must frequently go back to. In their prayer, they must frequently revisit this goal so that there's frequent confession of failure, frequent repentance from fearing man. So add all that up. Christian ministers today must avoid error. They must avoid impurity. They must avoid deceit that flows out of hearts that just want to seek to satisfy self and promote self. They must avoid the fear of man that flows out of a heart that just wants to seek to satisfy others and impress others. No, our goal is to please God alone by preaching a true message, living a pure life, and pursuing always an honest and authentic ministry. Let me assure you that each of our elders know knows all too well the many ways in which he falls short of this godly biblical ideal. But nevertheless, what is presented here is our constant pursuit. This means that you find in this passage what we would ask you to regularly pray for concerning us, concerning our leadership and ministry here at Twin City. Pray specifically for our courage. Not courage to speak about things that are outside of Scripture. There's lots of topics that people can be bold about. That's not what this is talking about. But confidence, pray for our confidence and courage to faithfully, always faithfully say what Scripture says. We ask that of you. Pray for our integrity. Pray that we would be truthful in all that we say. Pray that we would be consistent in daily fighting fleshly temptations. Pray that we would be sincere and honest and forthright. And pray about this goal for us. Pray that we would care more about what God says than anything else that we pray we would care more about what God says than what people say. And we will thank you for that. Let's go to the Lord even now. Father, thank you for showing 
me and showing our leaders and showing our congregation once again the I the ideal, the standard you have set for your leaders. We are aware of our shortcomings. We are aware of our failures, our sin. We are so grateful then for the cross, for Christ. Grateful that He lived the perfect life in our place that we could never live of perfect obedience. Grateful that He took on Himself our sin, died the death that we deserved. Thank you that we are not judged because of our failures, that all that judgment was placed upon your Son. Knowing that, Lord, gives us the freedom and the joy to pursue these standards as we seek to be faithful to you. Strengthen us for that task. We cannot do it on our own. I pray for each person here when it comes to that goal. It's a goal that each of us should have, that we just want to please the Lord and honor him with all that we do in all categories of our lives. Help us to be faithful to that. I do pray for the one here that may not know Christ, has never come to a place of saying humbly, I need to be forgiven of my sin. I need to follow Christ as my Lord and Savior. Open their hearts today. In our Savior's name, amen.